John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, and our focus will be verses 2 and 3, particularly verse 3. I will come again. John 14, 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Amen. Our Lord in this passage and in the previous chapter, he has indicated that he is departing from his disciples. He meant that in two ways. He meant that he was imminently departing in that he would be arrested and crucified and be gone for three days but then would rise on the third day, that would be a temporary departure when he says, I go away. But also, he meant it in the permanent sense, that is, after his resurrection, after his display, demonstration of his resurrected physical body for 40 days, then he would ascend into heaven. He meant it that way too. He would ascend into heaven and then return after some time after God's appointed time into the world to receive the body of Christ, to receive the bride of Christ, to receive his people, to receive his sheep, those Christians who truly believe in him. He would come again at an appointed time, appointed by God the Father, to receive his church. And he, with his church, would spend eternity together. That's the way it would be. That's what he meant when he says, I go away. You can't come right now. Later you can come. Later you will be with me, but you're not going to be with me now. He meant it in the immediate temporary sense of the three days that he was crucified and buried. But he also meant it in the sense of the time span between his first and second comings. Well, in this passage, he's speaking of it primarily or exclusively in terms of the intermediate period between his first and second comings. So, when Christ is not present, physically present, he told us not to have a troubled heart. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't have a troubled heart about anything that you experience. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe in what God the Father has taught. Believe also in what I have taught because what I have taught coincides and harmonizes with God the Father. Nothing the Father and the Son say contradicts each other. They are in harmony and they are two witnesses whose words are revealed in God's Word, the Holy Bible. And even in the book of John, the the Lord has reiterated again and again that He came as a messenger of the Father. Whatever the Father wanted Him to say, He said it. That also we saw last time. To believe in Christ is to believe in the Father. If, you, if we claim to believe in the Father, we believe in Christ. Furthermore, verse 2, My Father's house has many dwelling places. The Father's house has many, many dwelling places. My Father's house. We saw from John 5, 16 to 18, that when Christ says, My Father... He is claiming a unique relationship of deity 
from eternity past to eternity future between the Father and the Son. My Father. He doesn't say our Father's house. He says my Father's house. If he said our Father's house, he would be putting himself on the same level as us in our relationship with God the Father. But he's not doing that here. He's saying my Father's house has many dwelling places. These many dwelling places are for the innumerable hosts of heaven. Innumerable hosts of heaven. Not for a limited number. Not for 10, 12, 144, or 144,000. As cultists say. Some cultists like the Jehovah's Witnesses. They say that heaven is meant for a specific limited number of people. Yes, they misinterpret Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 14 to say that in heaven is only a limited number of people, 144,000. Well, Christ here says there's many dwelling places. And in Revelation 7, 9, it says that the multitude he saw was without number, which no one could count. John the Apostle saw a multitude that no one could count. Anybody who knows math, a school child can know math, at least by the time he's a teenager, can count up to 144,000. Whether in his head or on paper or with a calculator, he can count up to 144,000. But here, it's many dwelling places, and Revelation 7, 9 says, no one could count, which fulfills the promise God made to Abraham Isaac and Jacob, that their descendants, their spiritual descendants, would be as innumerable as the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore, which certainly there are more than 144,000 stars in in the constellation and also more than 144,000 grains of sand on the seashore. Any seashore has many more than that. So many dwelling places for those whom God Redeems, And we saw also last time, if it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus is a truth teller. He declares in verse 6 that he is the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We ought to trust his word with full confidence. He does not tell us any lies. If he says something, even though it might create some dissonance in our mind and heart at the time we hear it, Though we might be confused, though we might be anxious, if Jesus says it, it is true. He does not tell lies. He never told a lie who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2, 22. Jesus never lied. He always told the truth. That's why he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. So just believe what I say. That's what Jesus expects of us. Now we've come to the last part of verse 2 and verse 3. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He is going when he ascends into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. When he ascends into heaven... He's preparing a place for us. Not that he needs a lot of materials and a lot of workers and a lot of time and a lot of effort 
that he needs to have long days and sleepless nights preparing places for us. He doesn't mean it that way. He's using a figure of speech to say that this is something that we should anticipate. We should expect it. This should bring us hope and joy and comfort that he actually cares for us and has prepared our future for us. The future is set in stone. It is ready and it is there awaiting us, awaiting for our arrival, awaiting for the time that we will enjoy it. You know the Bible uses figures of speech like this, describes God and even Christ in human terms. Christ is called a shepherd, John chapter 10. He's called, and the Father are called vine and branches in chapter 15, correct? He's in chapter 10 called the door. He says, I am the door of the sheep. Is Jesus a literal door? No. Is he a literal shepherd? No. Is he a literal tree or a part of a tree? No, not at all. The Bible describes God in many, many terms that are understandable to the human mind for a spiritual meaning so that we might understand the spiritual truth. In this way, too, Christ has a place for us and specially prepared because we are a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds, Titus 2, 11 to 14. Because we are his own possession, we are the apple of his eye, the pupil of his eye. We are that precious and endearing to him. So, because of that, he prepares a place for us so that we might be with him permanently. He says, I will come again. This verse, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. This passage Mark, uh, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. These are the central New Testament passages where Christ, from his own mouth, has declared that he is returning. He is coming again. And when it says he's coming again, he's coming again. He came physically the first time to accomplish our salvation. And then the second time to actually present the salvation in full form to us and to judge the wicked, to punish the wicked. The first time he came to accomplish it, the second time to deliver it in 100% form and also to punish the wicked in the second coming. This is the passage. He says, I will come again. It is the coming of Christ or the return of Christ. Now, this is a summary of our passage here. Let's now discuss and study this subject known as eschatology. Eschatology with several points, as you see before you on the page. This study of eschatology, why study eschatology? Well, it's in the Bible, so we need to know it. And it relates to our future and our salvation and eternal hope and comfort so we must study it. Since it is in this way, and since Jesus puts our hope in it, we ought to know something about it, and know something about it clearly, so that we might believe it. Eschatology is a term that basically describes the last things. What will happen in the end of time? What will happen in the end times? That's what eschatology is. It's the study of things yet to come the final things of the world. What events 
what happenings will occur before the world ends. That's what this is a study of. The bodily second coming of Christ is a very important doctrine. We must understand it and know what is to come. Now, when people study this subject, they often say the Bible is confusing, the scripture is confusing, therefore, we can't have any certainty about what's happening. We just have to throw our hands up in the air and just hope that we've interpreted properly. That kind of defeatist mentality many people have in studying this subject. But we should not have that. There are some things about eschatology where the Bible is explicitly clear. Very, very clear. For example, just to say, John 14, 3, I will come again. What's he talking about there? I will come again. Is he talking about how many stars exist in outer space? Is he talking about spaceships and Martians? Is he talking about marshmallows? Is he talking about monkeys? No, he's saying, I will come again. Isn't that clear? It's clear enough. So why do people say, well, we can't know, we don't understand? He is talking about clear things, and we will see there are many clear things in relation to the return of Christ that we can and should understand. Having said that, we have to also grant that there are a few things, some things hard to understand. 2 Peter 3, 14 to 18 says, some things are hard to understand, but it doesn't say impossible to understand. The things that are harder to understand, these often cause differences among believers. But we should strive with the mind of Christ to figure it out and to be in harmony, even the things that are hard to understand. Nowhere does the Bible say, give up, abandon the idea, abandon the project of trying to figure out what's going to happen in terms of the events related to the return of Christ. We should always be diligent to examine the scriptures, like the Bereans in Acts 17, 10, and 11. Now, with those introductory remarks, what are some of these clear teachings? What are some of the essential teachings? What are some of the obvious teachings of the Bible on this subject? Point number one. Point number one is that there is a definite return of Christ, or second coming of Christ. There is indeed a definite return of Christ. We've already seen that to be the case from John 14, 3. Let's also see so in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 1 to 3. Matthew 24, 1 to 3. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
we see here that they ask this question with three parts or a threefold question here. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? He intimated here and they understood him to intimate that he is coming again. And they wanted to have signs of it, indications of it, ways to anticipate his return. Well, then Matthew 24, we said this is one of the central passages. Matthew 24, 29. 24, 29 to 31. Matthew 24, 29, further on his return. Your Bible also may have a header that says the glorious return. Matthew 24, 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. The Son of Man, it says, is going to come on the clouds of the sky. And when he comes, his angels will gather his elect who live all around the world. His elect from around the world. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. The subject matter, he introduces it as the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. Were the Thessalonians and the Apostle Paul gathered to Christ yet? No. That's why he's writing this letter, because some false teachers have troubled them. So he's trying to undo the trouble and try to, trying to comfort them. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 says, Therefore comfort one another with these words. He's trying to comfort them, assure them of what the truth is, because the truth will assure them of what to expect. But meantime... He has to write this letter because the coming of the Lord hasn't happened and the gathering of the saints to him has not happened, right? So here, more evidence that the scripture teaches that definitely the return of Christ is a fact of scripture, is a truth of scripture. We must say this because there are some who teach the Bible does not teach the second coming of Christ. The Bible does not teach the return of Christ. This was an invention of zealous Christians after the time of the apostles, but the Bible does not teach the return of Christ. That's not true. It says it right here. We just noticed it in three passages. Point number two. Point number two. The bodily, visible return of Christ. The bodily visible return of Christ. Christ Jesus currently has 
a physical body. He has a human body. He does not exist invisibly. He exists with a human body. That human body that was crucified was also raised from the dead, was also the one that ascended into heaven and will return in that physical body. Jesus has a perfect, immortal, glorified, physical, visible body now and forever. He still retains his human nature forever. So when he does return, it will be bodily and visible. And why is this necessary to assert? Because many people say, Jesus did not rise visibly, and he returns invisibly. Some people say, claiming to be Christians, Jesus returns invisibly, without a body. However, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. He has already appeared to the disciples, to many people, hundreds of people, for a period of 40 days. Now verse 9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He was lifted up, verse 9. Verse 11 says, has been taken up. And how? Visibly. The disciples visibly, bodily saw him go up and disappear into the sky, into the heavens. And these two angels in white clothing, called men here, sometimes angels because they appear as men, are called men. So these two men or angels say to the disciples, what's the point of you gazing into the sky? Don't you realize this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come? That's the second coming. In just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Visibly, bodily, they're going to see him return. Philippians 3. Philippians chapter 3, 20 to 21. Philippians 3, verse 20. Philippians 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Our citizenship is in heaven, And then the King of Heaven will return. Our Savior will return. We eagerly wait for Him to return. And when He returns, our humble mortal body that is susceptible to death, He's going to transform and conform to His glorious body. Glorious, immortal body. No more susceptible to pain, sorrow, and death. He doesn't have it anymore. And when he returns and we meet him, he's going to transform ours 
to conform to His. This also teaches the bodily and visible return of Christ. Point number three. Point number three, the rapture. The rapture is the second coming. The rapture is the second coming. Why say so? The central passage on the rapture is 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. This very passage, which is used by rapture proponents who separate rapture from second coming, those proponents say 1 Thessalonians 4 describes the rapture and other verses, other passages describe the second coming. However, this very passage actually does describe the second coming. Let's notice it. 4.13 But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This passage is meant to comfort us, right? Because when our dead, believing loved ones are gone, we wonder and we wonder how long are we going to see them and when is Christ going to restore the world so that we are with him and with our loved ones who are dead in Christ. Well, he says by the word of the Lord, verse 15, so this is true. The Lord Jesus taught him this. By the word of the Lord, verse 15. What's he describing? Is he describing the rapture or is the rapture the second coming? Are they two events or are they the same event? Well, the word rapture in English comes from a Latin word. And the Latin word comes from the Greek word, which is translated in verse 17, caught up. Caught up together. From Greek, caught up, into Latin, to be caught up is to be raptured. Even in English, sometimes when people are very emotional, we say they are enraptured. They are caught up in that emotion. So that's where the word rapture comes from. It comes from the Latin, which is coming from Greek. We use the Latin form of the word to describe it. Or at least the proponents of the rapture-only view or rapture-separate view say this from this verse. This is the only place. And this is the central place that they use for that doctrine. It's not the only place they use for that doctrine, but it is their central passage. Well, if verse 17 is describing the rapture, is the rapture the same thing as the coming? Yes, according to verse 15. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. The apostle calls it the coming of the Lord. He doesn't mean a partial coming. He doesn't mean a third coming or second coming, third coming, fourth coming. He's not talking about it in any of those terms. 
He's talking about the return of Christ, which return he explains further in 2 Thessalonians chapters 1 and 2. This is the coming of the Lord. So the rapture is the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. Another passage that they use or misuse is Revelation 3, verse 10. Revelation 3.10. We're talking about proponents of rapture as distinct from second coming. They use this verse, Revelation 3.10. Misuse it. Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole earth, to test those who dwell upon the earth. Here... Christ teaches that he's going to keep those believers away or protected from the testing, the hour that is about to come upon the whole earth, to test those who dwell upon the earth. This test, they say, is a test of affliction, test of persecution and affliction. Here, the promise is, the church will escape, they will not experience that persecution. Because the purpose of the rapture, as distinct from from the second coming, is to keep the church from experiencing persecution. And this verse is used to say, see, Jesus promised, the church will not experience persecution. Affliction, the rest of the people of the world will but I will keep you from that. I will protect you from that. Well, did Jesus mean that? For one, the rapture proponents who say rapture is different from second coming, they also say we now currently are living in the age of the Laodicean church, which is the next paragraph. So we're not in the age of the Philadelphian church, but the Laodicean church. But it was the Philadelphian church that was told that they were going to be protected when the test comes during their period. So are we in the Philadelphian period or in the Laodicean period? However they take it, they're misunderstanding. You see what I'm saying? What I mean is, if they say, we are now living in the age of the Laodicean church, Well, then verse 10 doesn't apply to us. It only applies to the Philadelphian church. But the Philadelphian church has already passed. Centuries ago, that already came and went, according to them, according to the way they misinterpret this verse. So even the way they interpret it, it doesn't help them prove the rapture. It just shows that they're not taking the Bible in context. Furthermore, When we are told that we are going to be kept, we're going to be kept. This same word, to be kept, is in John chapter 17. John chapter 17. 17, 15. John 17, 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. I do not 
ask you to take them out of the world. We're not going to be taken out of the world. We're going to stay in the world. But we're going to be kept from the evil one. To be kept from the evil one means what? To be protected from the evil one. Guarded from the evil one. Not that the evil one, Satan, the devil, the serpent of old, will not afflict us, will not tempt us. Yes, he does. He does every day. But he's going to protect us while we're in the world. Well, why can't that word also mean the same thing in Revelation 3.10? We're going to be kept from all of the miseries and the destruction of the test that comes on the world, but we're still going to be in the world when that test comes. Point number four. Number four, there is no secret rapture. Secret rapture. People say that when the rapture does occur, it's going to be secret. We're not going to know about it. It's going to be just like that, and people will not know. Well, when we read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, did it not say that there would be the voice of an archangel, a shout, and a trumpet of God? Does that not sound obvious and overt? It's obvious and overt. It's explicit out in the open. There's nothing secret about it. It's not as though we're going to be minding our own business and suddenly people are going to disappear from our left and right. It's not like that. It's not in a secret way. It's going to be very obvious and evident that it happens in that manner. We also read from Matthew 24, 29 to 31. Did we not? And there he says that all the tribes of the earth are going to see the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. They are all going to see him coming in the clouds with power and great glory. And Revelation 1.7, Revelation 1.7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. No secret rapture. Point number five. The date is unknown. The day and hour. The date, day, and hour are unknown. We cannot specify, we cannot say 1874, 1914, 1925, 1975, 1988, so on and so forth. There have been many false prophets who have declared, and these are just in recent history, and there's just a sampling that I just mentioned. These are just a sampling of the dates, but many false prophets have prophesied the return of Christ and the end of the world by setting a date and causing people to put confidence in that date. However, it is entirely unknown to us. How so? Why so? Matthew 24, 36. Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Matthew 24, 42, verse 42. Therefore, be on the alert, 
For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. 24 verse 50. Verse 50. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 verses 6 to 8. Acts chapter 1 verses 6 to 8. And so, this also was just before Jesus ascended into heaven. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. They want to know, is it now that you're going to restore everything for us? Is now the time of the full restoration of the heavens and the earth? And he's saying, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not for us to know it. Not for the apostles to know it. And if the 12 apostles or 11 apostles at this point, if they don't know it, how are we supposed to know it? We can't say the Holy Spirit told me. We can't dissect it from the Bible if the apostles were unable to dissect it. Point number six. Number six. Christ is not coming again at any moment. When people say Christ could come at any time, he could come at any moment, he could come in the next second, he could come in the next minute, he could come in the next 10 minutes, he could come today, he might come tomorrow. Many people write books and publish movies on this very false notion that he could come at any moment. But it's not true. Why is it not true? For one, if it comes at any moment, then we're all going to be surprised in, in, in some ways. But 1 Thessalonians teaches otherwise. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief, so forth. And this also is meant for our encouragement. When they say at any moment like a thief in the night... But to whom will it overtake at any moment like a thief in the night? Not to believers, but to unbelievers who are happy and merry in their own way and they have their false prophets, their false preachers teaching them peace and safety and they live as they please like the evil wicked slave did in Matthew 24. And then it comes on them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman and they shall not escape. But not to us. To us, he's not coming at any moment as a surprise, like a thief in the night. He's not coming to us that way because we're sons of light, sons of day. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we start at verse 1. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now notice here, these Thessalonians were told by a spirit, a message, or a letter as if from the apostles, and they were shaken up. They lost their composed, sound faith. They were disturbed. They were disturbed because they were listening to falsehoods that bothered them as though they missed it. But he's trying to tell them here, you didn't miss it. If you missed it, I missed it. I, the apostle, missed it. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, they all missed it. But he's saying, our gathering together and the return of the Lord, the coming of our Lord, is not going to happen unless the apostasy happens first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So, that's not going to happen in the next second. That's not going to happen in the next minute, or in the next ten minutes, or the next day. We have to study and be observant of the times as to when those events will occur. But not at any moment. Not at any moment. Not suddenly, not to us. We wait for certain events to happen. In this passage, the apostasy and the revelation, the revealing of the man of lawlessness. Then the return could happen. If those events, so that's showing Jesus and the apostle didn't teach any moment return. One more, and that's John 21, John 21, 18. After Jesus rose from the dead, could he have returned? Could he have ascended? Could he have come back within a year so uh, or so of his ascension? A month after his ascension? How long was this period to be between the first and second comings of Christ? Did he teach them to expect it? Listen, I'm going to ascend today, but tomorrow I might return. Literally tomorrow or the next week or the next month I might return. Did he give them any indication like that? No. John 21, 18. Truly, truly I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And he's talking about Peter here and Peter being put to death by force. He's going to be put persecuted to death. But is Peter an old man? No, because he says, when you grow old, which means... Some years have to pass. Who knows how many years between his youth to his old age when he was persecuted to death in this manner. So just this fact shows Jesus never taught that his return would be at any moment. He told them to preach the gospel meantime, live a godly life meantime. Speaking of godliness, that is point number seven. Point number seven, holiness is expected now. Holiness is expected now. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and following. 
13. First, he introduces the subject matter of the coming of Christ, the day of the Lord. Verse 3. And then, what we should do meantime. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of, the, of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The people of the world mock the idea of the return of Christ, but what do we do? We anticipate it, and how do we anticipate it? By living righteously, expecting it. Verse 11, holy conduct and godliness. And verse 13, because we're looking for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Also, turn the page of your Bibles to 1 John 2. 1 John 2, 28. 1 John 2, 28 to 3, 3. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See, how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. The subject is in verse 28, having confidence, not shrinking away from him, in shame at his coming, the second coming. Meantime, we are the children of God, and we anticipate being like Christ is. We shall be like him when we see him just as he is. And meantime, he who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Point number eight. What's supposed to happen, what will happen between the first and second comings of Christ? Is the world going to become a better and better place? Are we going to have more and more righteousness? Are 
the nations of the world going to be primarily Christian or completely Christian? Some people believe that. The world's nations will become primarily Christian or completely Christian, and then the Lord returns. Well, if we remember what we read in 1 Thessalonians 5, Matthew 24, remember how he describes the world worsening, getting worse and worse? Okay, we have that confirmed in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. We'll read verses 1 to 13, excerpts from 1 to 13. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of God rather than lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such as these. He says that in the last days, those last days are our days, difficult times will come, and all of this, the sins he mentions in verses 2 to 5, they are happening now. There is no improvement on these sins. It's even worsening now, correct? Well, he says in verse 13, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. From bad to worse. He doesn't say from bad to better. He says from bad to worse. From bad to better, if he had said that, then we would be thinking that the world is going to be completely converted to Christ and then Jesus returns. But that's false. It will not be that way. The world worsens And we see it before our very eyes, and it's only Christ who delivers us. He only is our hope, which is point number nine. Point number nine, our only hope and comfort is Christ. He is our only hope and comfort. We saw that in John 14, 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, that where I am, there you may be also. We saw that also in 1 Thessalonians 4. 4.18, therefore, comfort one another with these words. 5.11 says, therefore, encourage one another and comfort one another. Christ's and his personal presence is our only hope out of this world. Not the Christianization of the world. Only Christ. And not even the worldly things we enjoy now. They are not our hope. Only Christ. Number 10. Point number 10. There's only one gospel from Genesis to Revelation. Only one gospel. That gospel is described in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5 as Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel. The gospel is not to be defined, explained differently 
in different periods of time. It wasn't different when Adam existed, and then different when Abraham existed, and different when Moses existed, different when David lived, different when Isaiah preached, different when Jesus or, or John the Baptist preached, then Jesus, and then the apostles, and then after the day of Pentecost. And it's not going to be different in the future, supposedly, after the rapture, between the rapture and second coming. There is a doctrine known as dispensationalism, but it's also manifested in various other ways. Some people have the disease of dispensationalism and they don't know it, but that's what the disease is called. It's also called Marcionism. This disease says that the gospel is different in different periods of time. The thing that people need to believe is different for them to be saved depending on the period of time or their locality in the world. Wherever they live in the world, they don't need to believe the same thing we believe. But that's not true. Like we said, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 describes Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and was buried and was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. It says that is the Gospel. Well, Galatians 3, 6-14 teaches Abraham believed in that very Gospel. Abraham believed in the coming death and resurrection of Christ as we believe in the accomplished death and resurrection of Christ. How do we know so? Galatians 3, 8. Galatians 3, 8 and 9. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. There is only one gospel. And if we believe in a different gospel, we are under a curse. Galatians 1, 6-10 pronounces that curse. Point 11. Point number 11. The way of salvation for Jews or Israel and Gentiles is... The same. The way of salvation for Jews and Gentiles is the same. Not different in different periods of time for the different peoples. Galatians 3. Galatians 3, 26 to 29. Galatians 3, 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. One way of salvation in Christ Jesus, which is for Jews and Greeks. Slave, free man, male, female. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter who you are, if you are a human being, your status, your condition as a human being doesn't matter. It's required of you to have faith in Christ. Then you are saved. This is also what he says in Galatians chapter 6, where in 6.16 he calls the church the Israel of God. Galatians 6.16, the church is called Israel. 
which is Jews and Gentiles, the Israel of God. There is only one way of salvation. We must say this point, point number 11, because there are plenty of heretics who say the way of salvation for Jews is different than Gentiles. Gentiles different than Jews. The black man different from the white man. The white man different from the red man. So on. There are red men who believe the, the way of salvation is different for them than for the white man. And there are black men who think the way of salvation is different than for the white man. And there are white men who think the way of salvation is different than for the brown man or the black man or the red man. And yellow men, I have to include everybody. Even yellow men, people from the Far East, they also think their way of salvation. Or light-skinned brown and dark-skinned brown, whatever. They think their way of salvation is different. It's all false. It's not true. It contradicts the holy word of Christ. Only one way of salvation since we're all created in the image of God. Number 12, point number 12. There will be uh, the bodily resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Both the righteous and the wicked will rise from the dead. Acts 24, 14, and 15, there will certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. From Acts 24, 14, and 15. John 5, 28, and 29. John 5, 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. The righteous and the wicked will rise with the physical body. The righteous with a glorified body the wicked with an eternal body that is susceptible to pain and torment in the lake of fire. That lake of fire will be meted out by Christ. That's point number 13. Number 13, the day of judgment is coming. The day of judgment is coming, and when that day comes, Christ will be seated on the throne. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, 30 to 31. Acts 17, 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that all everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. Christ is the great judge who will judge every person. That's what he will accomplish when he returns. 2 Thessalonians 5.10 2 Thessalonians 5.10 also says, For we must also, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or evil. Furthermore, when he does judge, when Christ our Lord judges, what will happen? The people who are not found in Christ will be thrown into the lake of fire. Which fire is real? Matthew 8, 11, point number 14. The lake of fire is real. Matthew 8, 11. He says, in that place, there shall be weeping and gnashing 
of teeth. Matthew 8, 11. Matthew 25, 46. Matthew 25, 46. He speaks of the eternal nature of this. And these shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Matthew 25, 46. Eternal punishment in the lake of fire contrasted with eternal life. Revelation 21, 8. What kind of people go to the lake of fire? Revelation 21, 8 explains. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. These are some of the common sins of man. And he's saying these unrepentant sinners will be thrown into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. It is a real place where real, actual sinners go for all eternity. And then, number 15, our final point, number 15. The new heavens and the new earth are real and forever. Real and forever. We've already read 2 Peter 3.13, for we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Revelation 21. Revelation 21, 1-4. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. The new heavens and the new earth are also real, and they last forever. We assert these remaining points because there is great unbelief and mockery of a day of judgment, that Christ would be that judge, that the lake of fire would actually exist, that God would throw people there, and that our belief in a heaven an earth in which righteousness dwells is mere fiction. You're just believing in a fairy tale. That's not what happens after death. But the Bible explicitly says, these are the things that will accompany the return of Christ and the eternal future that we all have, either in heaven with the Lord or in hell with the devil. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.